Hi, I'm Mark Fontaine and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Service Design Show. I'm really excited to share another podcast exclusive episode with you. All right, let's jump right into it. And the topic for today is research and more specifically research to measure how well a service is performing and research to measure how well you are doing your job. In most organizations where there isn't a strong research culture, and let's be honest, that's most of them, it can be frustratingly difficult for you to do even the smallest amount of research. And when you do try to do research, you run up against many roadblocks that you first need to overcome. For instance, things like the fact that you don't have buy-in from certain stakeholders, that you don't get the time or resources to do proper research and that you are surrounded with people who feel like it's going to slow them down anyway. If this sounds familiar, well, you're definitely not the only one who encounters these struggles. That's why we recently dedicated an entire circle session to uncover the tactics service design professionals like you have been using to make research an ongoing process rather than a one-off activity. And I've invited Tim and Taylor who led the circle conversation to share the six best practices that emerged from our conversation. If this is your first time listening to the podcast and you haven't yet heard about The Circle, let me quickly fill you in. The Circle is a tight-knit community for busy in-house service designers who want to grow as professionals. We get together once every month to share stories, failures and best practices. All coming from people who get their hands dirty doing actual service design work on a day-to-day basis. The Circle is really a place where you'll find a much needed reflection on your practice, which is something I have found many in-house service designers struggle with when they are chasing never-ending to-do lists. Maybe you're an in-house service designer right now who wants to connect with and learn from other peers. In that case, I would invite you to join us in the circle. For all the details on how to apply, head over to servicedesignshow.com slash circle. You'll also find the link in the show notes of this episode. We're almost ready to jump into the conversation with Tim and Taylor. The only thing left for me to say is let the show begin. Welcome to the show, Taylor and Tim. Hey, Mark. Hey. Awesome to be doing this uh, new Circle podcast episode. Uh, we're doing the first one with the three of us. There, all the previous ones uh, were uh, one-on-one, so I'm really curious how this will go. We'll have to sort of manage the conversation and uh, manage the connection between the Netherlands, US, and Czech Republic, right, Tim? Yes. Um, so before we dive into all the uh, very interesting aspects that we discussed in the circle and that we'll be sharing with the listeners today, um, maybe it would be very helpful to do a short introduction. Uh, Taylor, maybe you could start off. Um, what do you do these days? Uh, so currently I am a senior product designer for Kroger, which is the biggest grocery company in the United States. Uh, I am working with them in their replenishment space, uh, helping them to improve all the, the systems and services that their uh, procurement team uses. All right. Uh, awesome. And you've been a long time member of uh, of the circle and previously <laughs> the campfire. So uh, awesome yeah. uh, to have you on this stage today. Tim, um, what about you? 
Uh, what are you doing? How, how are you spending your days? Um, I'm spending it here in the Czech Republic. So I'm working for, uh, for Kiwi.com. So we're a travel uh, tech skill up. Um, so I'm working there as a service designer. Um, and uh, aside from that, enjoying the nature here because I'm originally from the Netherlands. And uh, yeah, so we're mostly focusing on processes and uh, experience design there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So two service designers, service design professionals, but in very different spaces. Uh, you had the uh, honor to sort of be the first ones to co-host uh, a circle uh, session. I'll give a spoiler, and the spoiler is that the topic was, I had to uh, look it up how you exactly phrased it, but uh, cultural barriers to continuous evaluation of services. Is that correct, Taylor? Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, how on earth did you come up with this topic? Uh, let's see. I think it started off with a conversation around this idea of measuring services, measuring success. These are frequent topics in the circle. Um, and then it just kind of evolved. We set together a small group of people trying to try to change up the format a little bit of the circle. Uh, Tim and I kind of led the discussion and just try to see like where everybody kind of naturally coalesced around. And the spark seemed to be mostly around the cultural barrier piece. So that's kind of where it started. <laughs> So, Tim, uh, enlighten us. Cultural barriers, what does that even mean? Yeah, I mean, we, we got talking about evaluating services and, and mainly around the, the struggles everyone had. So these cultural barriers, we just use the term there to really define um, kind of the barriers you encounter within an organization related to hierarchy or difference, basically friction between expectations coming from different backgrounds, right? If you're uh, working with your colleagues, it can be you know, working with business debt or technical friction with uh, other person working for value. So, uh, yeah. So yeah. it's not, not so much about the tools and methodologies, um, but much rather about the enabling environment that allows you to do continuous evaluation. Exactly. Correct? More the, the politics. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Around it, I guess. So <clears throat> diving straight into this, why, why would somebody even want to do want to evaluate services continuously taylor i would say it's just kind of like the the obvious you know when you are able to easier access the insights of your end users your customers um, you're going to be better able to serve them uh, share that socialize that help your organization uh, move towards being more uh, customer centric user centric um, and at the end of the day that's just going to make it easier for you to do great design work and kind of get those barriers out of the way get everybody really enthusiastic about what you're there to do mm. Tim, I know from my own experience that uh, it's really services are very holistic in their nature. It's really hard to even measure a single piece of a service. How do you how do you evaluate a service? What does let me rephrasing the question? What does evaluating services mean to you? I mean, I, I definitely don't think there's one uh, you know metric you could use to evaluate a whole service. It's the same as working with Touchpoint, right? It's a, kind of a sum of all its parts. And I think what, what we were also talking about in the circle session, it also doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, start small anywhere. Uh, so it can be simple usability testing. It doesn't have to be some huge data platform uh, even. Hmm. Uh, so yeah. The smallest feedback already matters. Uh, yeah, so it, yeah. Uh, Taylor, anything to add to that? 
Yeah, I think people get a little sidetracked sometimes um, when they when they think about wh- what they're doing to measure a service or a system. But I agree with Tim. Yeah, small progress is still progress, and when you're dealing with cultural barriers, it's like the most important piece. Still, I I, I still want to dig a little bit deeper into this. When, Taylor, when you think of evaluating services, what do you see? What 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 do, what does that mean? What do we do when we evaluate services? So it's a combination of things. I think one factor is evaluating the service itself, um, looking at what's working, what's not working, what's connecting best with your uh, end users. But then there's this other element to it, which is you know measuring how effective you yourself are are in the role of enabling and and redesigning that particular service. There's two facets to it mm. that came up frequently in our conversations. Um, so I would say, you know, creating that evaluation is is it being able to look at your organization and say, how do how are we performing? Is this, you know, related to our size of our organization, our growth type or rate? Um, you know, how are we doing in terms of design maturity and what budget am I working with to enable this measurement? Hmm. So is the service doing what it's supposed to do? That's, I guess, yeah. one metric. And the other one is are we doing what we are supposed to do in order to improve those, <laughs> yes, that's a, those metrics? Succinct, right? yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tim, how, I'm curious, how would you describe um, the current situation with regards to uh, this eva- evaluation and measuring uh, of services? Maybe uh, if you can share within your context and if you can share specifically about your context, the things you heard uh, in the circle. What's the current situation like? Well, I think everyone is is dealing with these constraints we already mentioned, right? So there's different different types of maturity. Um, you know, if you're looking at startups that are scaling super fast, uh, you're dealing more with technical debt, for example. Uh, but in, in bigger organizations, also from my experience, you're dealing way more with, with politics and hierarchy. Right, as a balance and it's really kind of navigating between it. Um, so I think it's also kind of taking a measuring stick for your own organization, see what you're dealing with there. Um, yeah. yeah, and and how would you uh, describe the, the situation on your end? I, well, I, not I per se, say, yeah. yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think we're, we're a skill that's already pretty mature. We're now really entering in the phase where we're trying to uh, structure a lot of processes and kind of dust off the hacked solutions, let's say, that you have more with, with the startup mentality, right? Uh, also, since we're just increasing our scale, we need to um, uh, kind of be a bit more aware of the the impact we leave. It's not just, you know, one feature impacts a lot of users. And it's also really what we're focusing on, what we've been focusing on for the last year is really getting our customer support data as a feedback stream to... Um, to our product engineering. Uh, and it's also something, you know, a lot of people helped within the organization and it's still, uh, we're still working on improving it further and further. Yeah. Yeah. Taylor, uh, how is your situation with, the, with regards to this topic? Um, I think very similar. Um, you know, the, the service design as a discipline is, is definitely something that's becoming more widespread. And as that's happening, you have a lot of small teams starting up in legacy companies. That's kind of where I'm at, um, where we're trying to get our footing, figure out what does it mean to be a service designer in this space. Um, and, you know, additionally, I think I would add that, you know, just what kind of products are we taking on as well? That's a, that's another big factor. 
um, that I encounter. Uh, you know, sometimes I get asked to do things that are more related to product, but then sometimes I get to ask, you know, to, to solve organizational issues. Mm. So uh, I'm curious if you could uh, dive into some of the uh, challenges that people see between where they are today with regards to measuring impact, measuring uh, effectiveness, and where they want to be. Where, what were some of the things you heard in the circle? Uh, Taylor, maybe you can start off. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the barriers we heard were uh, around things like, you know, they they currently are dealing with people that are not fully bought in to design thinking. Um, maybe they're meeting resistance, like in their organization's hierarchy, um, trying to find their champions internally as well to figure out who's going to help them actually like get things moving. Um, the constant pressure to deliver on, on, you know, projects, but not being able to necessarily, uh, do, you know, share the value that you want to show, right? Um, or being asked frequently for quantitative insights versus maybe qualitative and, and how to share the, the richness that qualitative insight can provide. Mm. Tim, any other struggles that you heard in the circle? I think Taylor Coffin, I think a lot of it was was indeed around uh, the time pressure of delivering right and of being able to to go in depth, people not wanting to to add this additional work of evaluating something you built to the current workflow. I think that's something that came up a lot and, and also finding your partners, for example, if we're talking about you know measuring elastic experience, who owns that, right? Who owns that measurement? Um, which was also a very interesting uh, topic, I would say. Yeah, a, a lot of recognizable struggles, the, the qualitative part, the, the holistic nature of services. It doesn't make it uh, per se very easy to, to do this. Um, now, I'm curious, these struggles are there, uh, these challenges are there, these roadblocks are there. How is this impacting your work, for instance, Tim? How, how, which consequences do you suffer? Well, I think the, the obvious one is you're, you're, you know, spending resources that might not, uh, that might go to waste, right? You only realize way too late that what you build is not the, what they actually want, what your customers will buy. Um, but I think it also ties into eventually as, a, as an organization will get outcompeted by companies who do, um, who are able to kind of hone into uh, the difference in demands. Of course, there's now we're also shaping with COVID. There's new expectations, um, so I think it's kind of having a pulse check with your customers, seeing if you're still on the right track. Mm. Uh, instead of it's easy to get sucked down in your day-to-day -day work. Right. I get that on an organizational level, mm -hmm. but you have to deal with the struggle on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe not day-to-day, yeah. -day, but maybe on a week-to-week -week basis. How is this impacting you as a service designer? I think it boils down to mainly collaboration with other teams and trying to, you know, as a designer, you cannot build something yourself. You, you don't have the technical capabilities. So it's always about convincing others, showing them the value. I think that's also where the, these barriers come in, right? Like a, a disparity between what people consider valuable to do um, and how do you convince them? How do you convince them there should be this evaluation process in there? So it boils down to a lot of talking and spending time on uh, kind of coordination instead of building processes or, or building work. Yeah. 
Yeah, a lot of diplomacy work and uh, yeah, yeah. a lot of uh, evangelizing. Uh, Taylor, I'm also curious about you. Like, how, which consequences do you experience from not having this continuous evaluation? Well, um, so places like where I'm at currently, uh, we're, you know, it's a bit more of a legacy company and we're trying to rapidly scale to being more product led and, you know, more, more customer centric. You deal with things like uh, people that, that aren't fully bought in, that aren't fully on board, kind of making it really challenging for you to just do your job. And, and if you don't feel like you're doing your job, if you don't feel like you're serving your purpose, you know, within your company or even just honestly within your own passions, it can be really uh, draining, right? Uh, so some people quit just because they can't get the momentum they want in organizations. Um, I personally, I like the challenge. I gravitate towards this kind of thing. Um, I look for the aha moment where they connect and they see how valuable this is. But it is challenging just to get people willing to trust you, especially when you are kind of like a startup within a massive legacy company. And and what does it mean when uh, you 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 have a lack of trust? What does it mean for you? Oh, it, it means that people don't want you to do things that they, they might do things like, you know, looping you out of meetings or uh, assuming that you're going to slow them down. And they are like, hey, I've got deadlines. Like, for example, I'm balancing the needs of a, of a product org with the needs of a grocery store. So we're dealing with supply chain issues right now. That's a real issue with COVID especially. So, you know, how do we meet the needs of the people that we're trying to serve and the organization that needs to serve them and do that timely, but also do it the right way? Um, that's a constant challenge and people that see us thinking too much in that space of design thinking and don't feel like we understand the pressures that they're under to meet the customer's needs. Mm. Yeah. So you don't get involved at the right time in the right decisions and then you have to, uh, yeah, do a lot of patchwork maybe later on, if any. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And mm. then getting them to buy into the lean process, I think has been the best thing uh, just to show them the incremental value. How so? Um, showing them that, hey, you know, research can be done. It can be done well, but it doesn't have to take three to six months to do it. It doesn't take like a fleet of researchers to do good research. Okay. That's interesting. Um, so uh, let's dive into that a little bit. And that's maybe a nice transition into uh, the best practices that quite organically emerged throughout um, our conversation. Um, eventually we came up with six, but uh, it could have been five or seven. Uh, it was just <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the nature yeah. of the design process that uh, led to six. Um, so how about we go uh, over them one by one and then you sort of uh, switch between switch, switch seats. Um, Tim, would you like to start off? Uh, what was one of the yeah, yeah, best sure. practices that, uh, that you heard? Well, I think Taylor already touched upon it a little bit that it doesn't necessarily take a huge uh, uh, effort to do some research. I mean, I, I personally have the luxury that uh, within our UX team, we have, we have very good uh, and quite a lot of researchers. Um, but there were also times during the pandemic, for example, where we had to have a lot of pressure. Uh, and we just did guerrilla testing with a few users, at least, uh, to kind of fit it in, uh, let's say, the product development cycle to at least have some feedback and iterate a bit quicker. So one of these insights was making it more of a habit and always at least doing a little bit and kind of getting this compound interest, you know, later on, right? So you can scale it up more easily because you already have a, a foot in the door, let's say. So um, making it into a habit, that sounds quite interesting, but how, how would it look in practice? 
So in this case, we were talking about making it a habit in, in, in the workflow of teams. Um, so really, uh, there was talk about a research train, about having kind of a, a stage gate just before release, a quick check-in um, with, with research. Um, so this boils down to saying like, hey, can we maybe do an unmoderated usability testing? We just send it out, we wait two days, you don't have to do anything. Really kind of lower the barrier uh, for other people so it doesn't feel like extra work. But it's just kind of small bits and you kind of try to creep it bigger and bigger every time. Uh, and once they're familiar with it, I think that's that's also one other thing that Taylor made me can touch up this whole familiarity of, of the process, reframing the idea. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, if I could add to that, sure. um, I would say, so something that I've had a lot of success with and I kind of heard similar things during our session was um, this idea of like, how do you bring your workflow into their workflow? So for example, like at, at my uh, organization, I aligned my workflow to using tools like Jira that the engineering and product teams were heavily using and then figured out how to break down my tasks into tickets that could easily be translated for their workflow so that it really quickly carried over from like, here's what Taylor needs to do to get to this feature design to this piece so that the engineering team can actually build it. And they were able to kind of come along with me and it became a natural part of our, you know, organizational workflow. Um, but yeah, to that point, uh, it does also take some reframing <laughs> on the idea of what research is. And, and um, that was another topic that we heard a lot about, uh, which is, you know, some places people just get a bad taste in their mouth about research. Um, I've encountered that in the past with some product managers. And, um, you know, how did you get them over that? Well, maybe you call it learning or sense making or discovery. Um, other things that, you know, we talked about were, you know, taking qualitative insights and quantifying them. That's a, a really great way to get people who are more used to looking for quantitative feedback that, you know, they want the numbers so they can show their boss, so they can look good, um, how, how to show them the effectiveness of qualitative research. So can you give an example? Because that sounds quite intriguing, quantifying qualitative data. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so for example, let's say you're doing qualitative interviews and you talk to like 15 people and they'll share a similar insight. Um, if you were to do a survey, maybe maybe you could have guessed that answer, but maybe not. That's the benefit of an interview, right? You can probe deeper, you can get to those rich insights. So being able to say, well, we heard from 15 people this particular thing, this was a surprise insight to us and being able to quantify that 15 out of 15 to that stakeholder makes them kind of go, oh, okay, you know. There's something there. Maybe that's something we can explore some more. So at at least giving some numbers. <laughs> yes, some some form of number makes some people feel really secure. Yeah, even um, even though the the number itself might not be super meaningful to you. Uh, exactly. I think are, I think I also heard in the session like uh, this person spent 20 minutes complaining about this one issue. Yeah, you know, so uh -huh. something like that mm. to kind of stress mm -hmm. the importance. Or we have it with airport waiting time, for example. It's the same. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So reframing uh, what research is and maybe um, uh, connecting it to the language of your stakeholders, mm -hmm. like if they prefer or if they are more sensitive to sense making or discovery, if that's less uh -huh. intimidating, uh, that could be a good segue into actually doing research. Yeah, Correct. and I would also say this concept of like the workflow is important too. Like if they think research, some places think, oh, I hand this to you, you do it, then you bring it back to me. But that's not necessarily the way it has to work. You know, you can bring them with you and that tends to make them more excited and more enthusiastic at the end of the day. Hmm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Tim, do you have another one? Um, 
we were talking about this uh, asking for permission beforehand for doing research, which I thought was quite an interesting one um, and trying to convince others upfront if I please can do research. Um, but instead, don't ask for permission, just do it uh, however small on your own independently and show them uh, the outcome afterwards. Because we, we were discussing that it's a lot uh, easier to convince people if they already see results than trying to uh, convince them of a fake concept. So if you already come with uh, a usability study or with uh, some data from a survey and you show them like, look, this is what people talked about, then they say, ah, okay. And then you can explain, well, this actually didn't take this much time. So maybe next time we can try it, you know, uh, start small. So th this sounds almost too good to be true. Like, how do you do research when you don't have the mandate? Or where do you find the time, the resources to, re to do research? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can uh, juggle uh, a few meetings, displace them and, you know, launch a, launch a study or interview at least one person. It takes an hour or maybe you can set up a, rem a remote study, launch it over the weekend. And then on Monday, you take an hour to collect it and, and analyze it. Right. So. Um, Taylor. Yeah. Yeah, this is my this is one of my favorite things to do actually yeah. <laughs> uh, to get the buy-in. So um, yeah, for example, um, there are some places that I've worked at where maybe they have a tool already, like User Zoom or whatever. But it takes a little bit of time to set that up, and you've got very limited time to actually like show the value and get the work done. So use QuickTime. Why 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 make the tool the barrier to doing good work? Just mm -hmm. use QuickTime, get it done. Yeah, like Tim said, make the time. If you need to invest a little bit of time in this, you know, particular effort to show the value of your work, why not? Right? Even if it's a little bit outside your normal hours. So how uh, to dig a little bit deeper into this one? How do you um, uh, justify to yourself that you know that this type of research isn't probably living up to your professional standards? You know what I mean? Like, oh, totally. <laughs> okay, so how how do you how do you yeah how do you deal with that? Um, I think the excitement from people that comes out of it is the payoff. You know, when you get someone who sees the value in it, they buy into giving you that time to do the kind of research. So it's a means to an end, right? It's a mm -hmm. stepping stone, moving in that direction. And similar experience, Tim. Yeah, I think. Um... Sometimes you just gotta suck it up and, and uh, maybe not be as rigorous, but if in the end it will help you, um, you know, to convince others and join it. Because I think especially for, you know, people in smaller companies, it might be a one, one man design team or one woman design team. Um, it is hard to do everything yourself. So it's better to try to get others excited and maybe they can help you as a co-interviewer the next time, for example. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if we heard this uh, a lot in our conversation, but maybe our own standards are one of the th limits that we need to get over. Like, I think we all know what good research looks like, and mm -hmm. uh, often we don't have the, the resources to do re research like we would have wanted to do. Uh, and that often is maybe stopping us from doing research at all, question mark. I don't, that, that didn't really ca mm -hmm. come up in the conversations, right? I th yeah, yeah. I think what we tried to look at was really uh, inventorizing the, the organization you're in, right? And we were talking about smaller companies versus big companies, and how does that impact the amount of rigor in your research? Um, maybe small, you know, small startups are more focused on building product and need more UI work. 
uh, whereas bigger organizations might actually crave uh, the information because mm. uh, they're further detached. But so I think it's also about reflecting on your own situation, seeing uh, who are the people, what's the history of the company. I think especially with culture, history is very important. Uh, I think I already heard it on the show as well a lot, right? Be a historian. Um, I definitely vouch for that as well. Yeah. Um, if I'm not mistaken, we're at the best practice number four, but I uh, lost track who was uh, who was next. <laughs> Taylor, maybe you can just pick up where we left off. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing we talked about a lot is is making fear of failure or loss of ownership less of a barrier when we're working with the organization. So creating psychological safety. Um, a lot of places, especially places that are bigger, maybe a little more legacy, um, have had a tendency to have a, a different kind of working environment and culture. So letting people know it's okay to fail as long as you're accountable. You know, you say, yes, I made a mistake. And we work at how we can, you know, avoid that in the future and working together to, to build the best possible um, you know, product as the end goal um, to t kind of take the spotlight off the individuals and more put it on the whole, right, um, is really important. Um, I've seen some places where people looked like they were really uh, maybe not even liking their job too much. And when you start creating that safety, they kind of open up and bloom and kind of go, oh, okay, hey, I can do better work this way in this kind of space. So, so it can be really nice. Yeah. And how does this relate to our research? Well, I mean, getting down to, to good insights comes from also this ability to, to provide psychological safety um, for someone to tell you something um, that'll inform, you know, a product or whatever. You might be dealing with the simple bit of feedback, but you also might be dealing with something really personal, uh, really, really critical that somebody might be embarrassed or scared to share with you. So being able to, to make it safe to do that is also really important. Yeah. And I would also add that I think it also ties a lot down to, to ego, right? Of the people creating the products and maybe not wanting to do research because they already think what they build is good. And it's yeah. kind of confronting, right? To put something in, in front of other people's eyes and you get a lot of, uh, hear, hear a lot of things that you might not want to hear. <laughs> um, so I think yeah. create room to, to kind of deflate the ego, let's say. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Taylor. Yeah, no, I was just, I was just agreeing. I think that that can be a really harrowing thing, but it is one of the. This is me getting on my soapbox. I think that design can change the world for the better, and I think that it can change organizations for the better too. You, you know, you get embedded with a small team, and you can do that for the organization. You can really change the way that people operate there, and you start small, but maybe one day, eventually, everybody's really comfortable talking like that and sharing like that, and it could be really powerful. Um. Have you, uh, Taylor, see, seen examples where um, uh, egos change uh, over time? And uh, if so, what what happened? Uh, yeah, yeah. When I started working at a, a previous company, I had a lot of people that were kind of uh, trying to show value by owning spaces and owning domain knowledge. And it became a barrier for me as a new person to, to get onboarded, to do my job successfully, to even like feel like I was getting invited to the right meetings to do my job effectively. Um, and what I did is I, I found that one person who kind of seemed to speak the same language in terms of design thinking and seemed to understand that. And I worked with them. I became really close with them. And we started the snowball moving downhill, right? We we started talking. We started doing research together, um, building service blueprints, looking at an operational issue, actually, and trying to track that operational issue across, you know, what was happening in the product, the UI, all the way to the back end, the support for customers. And when we did exercises to actually take the organization, sit them down and say, hey, is this correct and valid? 
validate that that journey, um, we were able to get a really great conversation going and eventually got to this point where everybody was so excited about the blueprint that they stopped caring about their ego. They started caring more about you know, what are we doing here and how do we make it the best thing possible? People shifted roles um, to things that maybe felt better to them and, and helped them feel more successful. Um, they changed their processes to support that. And then eventually we had product managers who were super against what I was trying to do and not willing to partake, suddenly reaching out to me and saying, okay, I need that. That's what I need. My team needs that to get aligned. Please help me. And that was huge. Mm. Amazing. Tim, <laughs> have you encountered something similar? I mean, I think, yeah, I think uh, no one wants to make terrible products or services, right? So I think it, it boils more to them. What, what type of access to information do they have? Because if they only have the you know numbers about revenue, then that's what they gravitate towards, right? So I think it takes a small thing, a small tool or process to show them and say, hey, this is very easy to use. Yeah, and I, th yeah. I think you hit on a very interesting thing there. Like um, everybody wants to build great products, services, solutions, right? And that's the thing you probably can tap into. Like, hey, listen, I'm here to help you do that. And mm -hmm. uh, are you in are you open? Are you are you interested in this? This might make your life more fun, your work more easy, and uh, help you to deliver more yeah. meaningful solutions, right? I mean, actually, I think a while a while back, a year ago, we started. Or I, I wasn't that involved in the project, but our research team started um, opening the um, the interview process we had with some customers. Started just we want in inviting PMs to to join as a co co host, Pro product or at managers. least as a note taker. Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry, yeah. product product managers. And uh, the amount of enthusiasm we got uh, was very very cool. Also, in, in other meetings, you would hear them quote uh, quote users from there. I mean, the flip side was that sometimes, you know, it, it tends to be a bit biased that it's the only thing they will focus on. But I think it was a great traction uh, moment. And that, you know, export into we could do huge discovery projects offer because we already proved the value with something small, right? And it could see, let's say, the magic behind it. Um, what would you consider was the small thing? What, what, what made it small? I think the fact that this was something we were already doing as a team, the only thing we did was kind of lift the curtain and invite them in, right? And show, I think this whole, sometimes this genius designer you want to be, <laughs> uh, you know, it's your tools and methods, but I know it's it's about making a, a project together, right? And inviting them in the process, I think, helps a lot with understanding your cultural background, professional cultural background. So. You know? Inviting them in and lifting the curtain sounds really good, but have you? What was the? Why did it work this time? So, was there anything in particular about this moment where you invited them that they were more open to hearing this? That did they have time? Like, what was it? Why they were again open to hearing this? Mm -hmm. I think what what Taylor also mentioned it was really, I guess, talking to people, see what they care about. And kind of trying to listen who might be interested so what, what we try to do is really specify when when there's a customer uh, say okay they have this background so this might be interesting for you uh, product managers dealing with this specific issue um so try to be personal in that sense with people i think that that might help yeah, yeah. can i add to that too actually um 
something that I, you're making me realize this as I'm listening to your story. <laughs> um, when people in, especially in operations and stuff, operations and product always tend to have this like little kerfuffle between them, like this little friction about who is, you know, who is responsible for what mistake. And there's a lot of finger pointing. And I found that this kind of lifting the curtain and inviting them in and then using research as a means to kind of help explain what's happening. People kind of sometimes come in even Maybe it's not the best reason, but they're like, well, I've been saying it's product's fault this whole time. This is going to prove it and and vice versa. And then you kind of figure out how to meet in the middle, which is nice. Yeah. You want to add something, Tim? No, I just thought it was really funny. Basically using the anger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Frustration, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. Uh, That's an interesting strategy. We need to add that one to the list. Um if I'm not mistaken, there's at least one uh, more. Tim, uh, is that correct? Do you still have one on your list as well? Um, yeah, we were also talking a lot about identifying the champions, uh, right? So one one topic we covered, uh, talking about the difference between bigger organizations, smaller in, in, in a small startup, you have pretty easy access to the CEO, let's say, um, and the people really calling the shots and having the resources. I think with bigger organizations, it is more, there are the resources, but they're maybe not as accessible to you because they're in some budget that is owned by um, executive number three. Um, and it's harder to find who who is that. Um, and it's also because you might, you know, show the value to the wrong person. Um, so you can convince maybe, uh, let's say, a very operational person, but it, they don't, won't have the power to influence anything or give you money the next time. Um, I think it's a concept that you hear, hear a lot. Uh, so really try to figure out who is owning it, find out other teams that you may not have heard of. Um, uh, for us, it's also our, our, we have a customer experience team who did a great job last year in really pushing a kind of the design agenda or customer experience agenda at, at top level management. Something that we as UX weren't able to do, you know, two years ago. Um, and now we're we're good partners and and really kind of making a front together and getting more people on the train. Let's say um, any any um, experiences you've had in particular with finding champions. Um, I personally have had quite a lot of presentations that did about insights to the wrong audience. So I did an, a very extensive research and system mapping and. Uh, was mapping whole money flows and I presented to them and I said, well, you should have talked to this guy who wasn't in a meeting. And I was that, that's a, that's a, and, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a win as well. At least you know when you need to be <laughs> next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So in that case, I went to him afterwards and then we kind of sorted it out. But um, would have been nice to do that beforehand. Um, so also, I think it's, which is harder in a remote environment, I think, to kind of build build the relationship personal relationships as well with those people and because you hear things here and there about company strategy that you can kind of leech onto uh, i guess with your own initiatives um mm. and i think a good tactic what i always use is when i'm talking to a stakeholder uh just ask them who should i talk to next uh, and they usually give you someone who you never heard of before or from some team you might not have heard of um i think that's a nice little tactic i try to yeah. use yeah 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 who needs to hear us who needs to hear the story so yeah. taylor uh, what is your experience with finding champions um i i said that that last experience i was uh, mentioning um you know 
looking at the organization, I, I encountered people that <laughs> flat out said, I'm not getting research involved. It's just going to take too long. You guys are a barrier um, because of their own past experience, kind of coloring their exchanges with me, even though it had nothing to do with me. Um, so being able to, to say, okay, who, who seems like they're interested or, you know, open to it. And sometimes it comes from the top down, right? Um, if the organizational leaders have bought in, they're going to tell people, hey, this is this is where we're moving. And they might even offer training on that. So you can look for a person who's taken that training, for example. And that's kind of where I started. I found a person who'd taken uh, some product-led classes and understood how to do good product discovery. And so they were they, they may not have done the research, but they understood the mechanics of, of how that should function. And that was the person I, I kind of targeted. Um, but then after that person gave me a chance, one of their coworkers, um, you know, said, hey, I, I have these issues I'm trying to solve for. I've got you know, pressing timelines. I just I need my teams to talk to each other. And I don't really know what the issue is. But I saw that that workshop you did to validate the service blueprint worked out really well to get operations and design kind of in sync. Can you do that for me? Um, and, and it ended up almost kind of leaning into like almost like a management kind of space a little bit uh, to, to fix organizational issues, which eventually led to, you know, the design of a, a overall better service and system and, and all that good stuff. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, we like you read it in every book on service design, like you need to find the champions. It's easier said than done. Uh, yeah. And I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, li I like uh, your practical tactics that you shared here. Now, uh, I'm curious, is there, Taylor, is there anything else on the list that uh, we haven't mentioned yet with regards to best practices for overcoming cultural barriers to continuous service evaluation? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm looking at, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think, I think uh, for the most part, we've covered it. I think, you know, in terms of, of things like tools and budget and stuff, that is something that is always a challenge and you don't always have control over it, but there are a lot of really great free resources. I think something that we kind of, kind of shook out while we were walking through this was just that, you know, in small places with small budgets um, or large organizations with small budgets, the budget seems to have a really big impact on, on how we evaluate. Um, and it doesn't necessarily need to. I think we were looking at some of the methods that people like tried and, and they didn't work. And what was interesting is seeing how much software was a part of that. So I would say, you know, when it comes to evaluating your, your software, sorry, evaluating your system, um, you know, don't let don't let tools for measurement be the barrier. You know, find workarounds. If you need to use Microsoft Forms instead of SurveyMonkey, use it. It's more important to get the information than, than not, you know. Um, I mean, I know a lot of people that get really stuck in documenting their notes for research sessions in, in Microsoft Word. I tell my team to come into Mural with me, and I have a whole process for, for having a panel of note takers that are in Mural with me so that we can collaborate and make sure we get the right information. I mean, that just works to be lean for me. Mm, so, yeah. yeah. Don't, don't, get, don't get hung up on the, on the tools. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any, yeah, Tim. Anything else you heard? Where, what, where do you remember from our conversation in the circle? I think um, it really boils down to kind of getting a feel for for the people you work with and understanding how they work, what process they have, and what tools they use. Like Taylor mentioned, and not be as hung up on what you use, but try to add it to their process. Um, and that's also why we talked about this whole cultural barrier aspect to really try to take a moment to reflect. I think there was a big thing 
there as well to how your organization works and what approach would fit most naturally. Um, so if you have low budget, okay, maybe, you know, uh, do quicker, take a less expensive tool um, and really know, know the people you work with, basically. If we sort of had to uh, start wrapping up and summarizing, um, Taylor, what would you say, if again, if you have to summarize, what were the biggest cultural barriers that you heard? Uh, I would say it had to do a lot with like getting buy-in from the organization, uh, both top-down and bottom-up, right? Um, and, and to Tim's point, um, you know, if you don't know your team, y it's hard <laughs> to know what will work best for them. So... I would say also just, you know, having that connection um, to understand what will work, what they might be interested in and are open to would be pretty mm. important. Mm. Yeah. And then that's what we've been advocating on the show a lot is like use your empathy skills and your research skills on the people you work with rather yeah. <laughs> or next to the people you're working for and, and try to gauge what the appetite is, for instance, for doing research and how much like what's the threshold how far can you go uh, uh what's needed in uh, in this moment tim um in 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 looking for a summary um if you had to share maybe just one tip for somebody listening right now who's eager to do more research because it will help them to do better work um if they take away one thing from this conversation what what do you hope um, I would say find a partner and start small, um, try to get others excited for it and, and show it valuable. You can be a bit cheeky and, and just do it off the book and, and get them excited afterwards, um, and understand how they work. Yeah. So those are a few tips. Find a partner, yes. do cheeky, <laughs> pick one. What's the most, like, let, I'm going to rephrase this one. Um, <laughs> what do you... If you ha would have to go back three years in time, what do you wish somebody would have told you about doing research? I, I think for me, it's it's would say don't don't ask for permission or you don't need to wait for permission. Um, just start somewhere. Yeah. Mm, and I like this question, so I'm going to ask it to you as well, Taylor. What would you <laughs> what What do you wish you have known three years ago? Uh, I would I would say um, I'm trying to figure out a way to summarize this that bit about lifting the curtain and you know, uh, owning research doesn't make you more valuable um, you know making research something that everybody participates in is what makes research valuable is what makes you valuable um, your value isn't in holding on to the the gates to research the gates to the user uh, you don't have to be the person who's doing all the synthesis right bring them along make it a, a cultural thing um, that's how you gain success and momentum. Uh, I like that a lot, and it makes uh, a lot of sense if we look loop back to the start of our conversation. Like, uh, it won't work if research is hung up on you as a service mm -hmm. designer, and especially if we want to do it on a continuous, uh, in a continuous way. And the things we mentioned about making it a habit, it needs to become a habit of everybody, or at mm -hmm. least way more people than. <laughs> There is, I don't know the uh, the exact quote, but uh, it's something like design is too important to be left to designers. And maybe with research <laughs> is something similar, like, yeah. um, right? Yeah, I would, I would agree. I also think it's just sometimes, and especially, I mean, I would say you'll see this a lot after COVID too. Um, 
you know, <clears throat> when people got laid off towards the beginning of COVID in a lot of places, people started thinking that they had to do these things to like make sure they were valuable. And, and that's the thing you'll see also with change management, right? And as companies transition to more design thinking practices, people feel like if I hold the gates to the keys to all this stuff about the user, they can't get rid of me. I'm too valuable. Um, and they can, they absolutely can. And when they do, you're going to, you're going to just destroy the company <laughs> with them trying to catch up with all your domain knowledge. So like socialize it, share it, you know, uh, don't, don't feel like all that pressure to, to make it about you, it's not about you. It's about the end user. I would mm. even say your your goal should be um, to not be needed. Like <laughs> yeah. give other people all the processes and skills to do it without you, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was another uh, thing. Scaling yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Like creating templates, creating processes mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that enable it. If you're on a small team, you can't be everywhere at once. I'm dealing with that right now. It's a huge ego check, yeah. and you need to check your ego because what's more <sighs> important is that it gets done and it gets done well with enthusiasm. And that's a great uh, success metric that you can actually use uh, to see if your work is effective. Like if you encounter research that hasn't been done by you, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. That's a success. If if people within the organization have done some sort of research, uh, which informs them how the service is performing, then you've won. Like they're doing it without you. And that's maybe the <laughs> ultimate goal. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Uh, we really need to wrap up. So I'm going to thank you for hopping on. Uh, thank you for hosting uh, this Circle session. Uh, the, it, I really enjoyed it. I think everybody in the Circle enjoyed it as well. Uh, thanks for hopping on on this uh, podcast episode to share what we've learned. And um, it's the tip of the iceberg. There was uh, so much nuance and rich stories shared, uh, but we have to limit it to our, our 50 minute uh, conversation here. <laughs> We'll see each other very soon uh, in our next uh, session. So uh, once again, thanks for coming on and uh, talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you. Awesome that you've made it all the way till the end of the episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it and got something useful out of it. Like I said at the start of the episode, if you're currently an in-house service designer and would like to be part of these conversations in real time, well, consider joining the circle. In the circle, you'll be able to connect with and learn from other in-house service design professionals. We've got super interesting topics coming up in our future sessions. And if you want to learn how to apply, head over to servicedesignshow.com slash circle. You'll also find the link in the show notes of this episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Service Design Show. It was great having you. As always, keep making a positive impact and I'll catch you very soon in the next episode of the Service Design Show.